Father God, the, the greatest need of the hour right now is for our hearts to be awakened to the reality of who you are. And for just like what Christopher prayed a few seconds ago, for you to, to give us a glimpse of your person, your character, your beauty, your glory. That's the greatest need of every single human being in this building and on this planet. And I pray that you would miraculously make that happen today in the opening of the word. Remove every distraction from our hearts. Remove uh, me as a distraction, Father, and speak through your word. Glorify your name so that we can see and taste and savor and enjoy the beauty of our God and Savior. In the name of Jesus, amen. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his own God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship, and he had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So last week we spent some time uh, in the first three verses, and we looked at how the word of the Lord came to Jonah, this prophet, tells him to cry out uh, to the people of Nineveh, the city of uh, Nineveh. It's a great and evil city, and it's the capital of Assyria at this time, the greatest empire on the planet. Uh, but Jonah does not go to Nineveh, as we just reread. Um, instead, Nineveh is northeast of Israel. He goes west, as far west as you can go, to Tarshish. Um, so this isn't just disobedience to a command. The first three verses are really clear. Jonah isn't just ignoring a command of God. Jonah is running from God. It says twice he is fleeing the presence of the Lord. Now, why does he do this? Why does Jonah do this? He's a prophet of God. He shouldn't do this. He should be open to embracing this command, but he doesn't. Well, Jonah answers this himself in chapter 4, verse 2. Toward the end of the book, we get an answer of why Jonah fled in the first place. And his motivation for leaving is actually somewhat surprising. His motivation, Jonah says, he's the reason I fled to Tarshish, the reason I disobeyed you when I was in my own country was because I knew that you were a gracious God. I knew that you were merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. I knew that you would relent from disaster for the people of Nineveh. And this is a problem for Jonah. Jonah does not like that. He doesn't want God to show mercy to Nineveh. He hates Nineveh. And he would love for God to show judgment to Nineveh and wipe them out. 
um, and probably all of Assyria along with Nineveh. And so this fleeing from the presence of God isn't just disobedience. This is what we spent most of the time last week looking at. Jonah's issue isn't just the command of God. It is the source of the command, the person and character of God. God desires to show mercy, and Jonah wants nothing to do with that. And so Jonah runs. He rejects the idea that God should be merciful or could be merciful to Nineveh, the enemies of Israel, and he runs. And what we saw in Romans 1 is that turning away from who God is isn't an exclusive thing that Jonah does here. It is actually the main problem with all of humanity. The main, dis- the main problem with humanity is there, there is a natural sinful inclination and disposition that apart from the grace of God, we would reject him. We would turn away from him and run in the other direction. And part of God's wrath, we looked at last week, part of God's judgment for this is he lets us run from him. He lets us run into the embrace of false gods, false um, or idols, false hopes that we will ultimately be um, given over to destruction for. And uh, the main point of last week we looked at is it, that it's a deadly thing to run from the living God, but praise be to God, he doesn't leave us there. He comes after us, meets us in the middle of our running, and redeems us. God pursues us and he saves us. And this is exactly where we find ourselves in Jonah 1.4. After Jonah's rejection of God, after he's fled the presence of the Lord, we read these three words at the beginning of verse 4. But the Lord. But the Lord. That's profound. It should have been over after verse 3. The book should have been over after verse 3. But it's not. God doesn't let Jonah run forever. He comes after him. And that's huge. And he means to get Jonah's attention. So he hurls this wind across the sea and it creates this this mighty tempest. In fact, it's so mighty that it threatens to break the ship apart. These are mariners who are now looking at this and saying, this is a supernatural event. So mighty was this storm, so great was this storm that these sailors respond in a great amount of distress. Um, It says that they were so afraid that each of them began crying out to their own God, pleading with their own God, and they even began hurling and jettisoning cargo out into the middle of the sea. This is how dire it is for them. This is not a normal storm, and they know it. And yet Jonah, where's Jonah? Jonah goes below the lower decks. He's been below the lower decks, maybe presumably since they first set off on this journey, and he's been fast asleep. That's what the text says. He's fast asleep. Now, let me ask you a question. How in the world is this possible? How in the world is this possible? I'm from the Southeast. I've been in a number of hurricanes, not in a ship, mind you, How is this possible that he would sleep in the middle of this storm? The ship is about to be obliterated and sent to the bottom of the Mediterranean. And the man is sleeping. And the only thing that can wake him up in this story is the captain who has to climb down into the ship and cry out to him, wake up, we're about to die. Um, He says, 
literally, what do you mean, you sleeper? In other words, how in the world could you be sleeping right now? What do you mean by this? How could you be sleeping right now? Arise, get up, call out to your God. So the sailors had been calling out to their own gods, and it hadn't been working very well. And so the captain tells Jonah, maybe your God will give thought to us. Maybe he'll save us. Now, before we continue further in this narrative, I want to pause and, and ask a real basic question. This is how I think about text when I go through them in my own personal studies. Why put this part in the Bible? Why include the part about Jonah sleeping? Clearly it happened historically, but you don't include everything that happens historically. You include the main things. Why include this? this it adds seemingly nothing to the overall narrative. Jonah's woken up in a single verse. It passes without further mention. Why add this scene of him sleeping? There's only really one good reason for them to add this, and that is that God desires for us to see it. He wants us to see what it was like for Jonah to run from God. What was it like for Jonah to flee the presence of the Lord? And what we are supposed to take from this, I gather, is that it was like a deep sleep. He was catatonic. He was numb to everything outside of him. That's what it was like. The man is sleeping during a violent and deadly storm that's probably going to take his life if someone doesn't intervene. And yet he is completely oblivious, completely ignorant to the danger that he is in. He's dead to the world right now. And I'm not just using that language figuratively. In a very real way, Jonah is dead. Jonah may boast in his relationship with God. Jonah may um, boast on the outside about being part of the people of Israel and being part of the covenant uh, people of God. But on the inside, this man is very dead to the glory and worth and beauty of God right now. He is numb to the heart of God for the people of Nineveh. And God is saying by these just few verses, this is what it's like to run from me. You want to know what it's like to run from me? It's like being asleep. It's like being dead. Because Jonah, like all of us, was made explicitly, he was designed explicitly by God to know him and to show him. He was designed to know God and to enjoy who God is, his glory, his beauty, his power, his worth. And then for that joy to overflow to showing it to the world. That's the reason why we exist. We talked about that last week. And yet he's dead to that right now. He's dead. He's running from God. He wants to get out of the presence of God. Something in Jonah's life is way more important and way more critical to him than the glory and the beauty of the living God. And this story is telling us that when that's true of, of us, when me, you, everyone else in this world, when that's true of human beings, it's like the deepest sleep that you can imagine. We are unable to be awakened even when our world is collapsing in on itself and coming undone at the seams. Paul talks about this kind of sleep, this kind of deadness in Ephesians 4.18. And I want you to listen to the language he uses to describe this. This is what it's like to be asleep like Jonah. This is what it's like to be spiritually numb to the beauty and glory of God. Paul says of these people, they are 
darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. And what Paul is describing here is a picture of what Jonah and really what all of us experience when we run from the presence of God. This is what it's like to be alienated from him. This is what it's like to be cut off from the life of the source of life in all the universe. And we saw this last week, that it's a deep-seated, almost unconscious ignorance that resides in those who have, in some way, shape, or form, exchanged the truth about who God is for a lie, or exchanged the worth and beauty of the Creator for something else, anything else in creation. And the very God that Jonah knows in his life has taken a back seat in his heart for his hatred of the Ninevites. And Paul says that is darkened understanding. That is an ignorance, a deep-seated ignorance that comes ultimately from the hardness of one's heart. This is what it looks like, what it means for us to walk away from the glory of God like Jonah is doing here. It's not, a, it's not a matter of logic or reason or rationality. It's not any of those things. When we walk away the glory, from the glory of God, Paul is saying that it is due ultimately to the hardness of heart. It is a matter of affections. It is a matter of what you treasure and enjoy. So Jonah's running from God proves that he has something in God's place and he does not want to give it up. He does not want to give it up. And this is what we see when we see him sleeping, a, a, a darkened mind, a hardened heart. He is asleep to the truth of who God really is. And the only way out, the only way out for Jonah is for someone to wake him up from his slumber. That's the only way out. That's exactly what we see in verse 6. Captain comes downstairs and wrenches Jonah out of his sleep with this language. <laughs> That's hilarious. Um, and he's probably shouting at him when he's saying this. I mean, you imagine they're in the storm. Wake up, Jonah. Cry out to your God so that we do not perish. And the irony is that this pagan captain is telling Jonah exactly what he should have done at the very beginning. You need to talk to your God. You need to meet with him. You need to speak with him. That's exactly what Jonah needs most right now. Jonah needs to come back to his God. He needs to embrace his God. His very life in this scene depends on it. Even if he can't see that or understand that right now, his life depends on it. So the question is, does Jonah do this? Do we, after he wakes up from his slumber, see him get on his knees and say, God, help us? Or God, spare them. I know why the storm's here. It's here because of me. Let's read the next four verses in Jonah 1 from verse 7. After waking him up, what does Jonah do? What happens immediately after? Verse 7 says, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So this is the sailors, the mariners. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation and where do you come from? 
What is your country and of what people are you? And he, he says to them, I am a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And it says here, then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So we need to keep in mind that the captain, just before this, tells Jonah, get up, cry out to your God, call out to your God, maybe he'll save us. Do we see that here? We do not see it here. There is no call out to God from what we can tell. Nothing in the text indicates that Jonah has done anything about that. And when we look at this word, the Lord here, this is the personal name of God, Yahweh. So in the Hebrew text, when this was originally written, that would be Yahweh, the name of God. It's Jonah's specific God, the the God of the Hebrews. That's the name of our God as Christians. There's no evidence in the text that Jonah made any effort to cry out to Yahweh and plead on behalf of these people for Yahweh right here. And the reason this is important is that Yahweh, Jonah knows, is the only one who can save them. He is the only one. But what we see here isn't remorse, isn't regret, at least not immediately. We'll find out some of the stuff he does next week. But what happens next isn't a prayer. It's the casting of lots. It's the casting lot. So everyone on the ship is still in the dark about where this storm came from. They know this storm is not a normal storm. They know that this is, that they refer to it as evil. In the Hebrew, it's ra. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's an adverse storm. It's an evil, bad storm. It's a storm that comes from some other supernatural means. They know that this is not normal. Um, and if they don't figure this out, it's going to be their ruin. They know this much. And so they cast lots. The lot falls on Jonah. And so Jonah is the reason for the storm. That's clear here. Jonah does not admit to that openly. A lot must be cast in order for them to find that out. But now they know. And they begin to drill him for information. Like, what? where are you from? What are you doing? Like, what, why are you here? Why is this happening? And Jonah answers in saying that I'm a Hebrew and I fear Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, the God, who made, who, the God of the heavens who made the, the sea and the dry land, that's my God. And they knew from earlier that he had run from his God, and so their response here is terror. When they find out that this is the maker of the sea and the earth, it's terror. What is this that you have done? This is way more serious than they could have even imagined. Think about the question that they're asking here. What is this that you have done? The implication is, Jonah, are you insane? Your God is the God who made all things, created all things, sustains all things. We've been calling out to gods who aren't hearing us, and your God is the one who brought this storm with the, with, for you. Don't you see how ridiculous this is that you would try to run from him. And for the sailors, this is important for us to recognize, the sailors are starting to see something for the first time in their lives. They are seeing who Yahweh, the one true God, really is. 
He is not one God among many. He is the only God. And he is the only God who can save them right now. All of their gods have failed them. And the sailors are waking up to that reality. Who is the one true God? Who is the ruler of the universe? For their entire lives, they have been fixated, their hearts have been fixated on false deities. And really, their idolatry goes beyond the deity itself. Whatever the deity could give them, fertility, um, safe travels, um, crops, anything that the deity could provide them with, that is their idol. That is their God. And they are waking up to the futility of those things in the middle of a storm. They are futile. Right now, Yahweh alone remains. And they are beginning to see clearly that he is the one who matters. The sailors are waking up from their sleep. Yahweh brought the storm to wake up Jonah, but it's the sailors that are waking up. So what happens next? Do they survive? Does Yahweh save the sailors? And the answer to that question is yes, he does. We're going to look closer at how that happens next week. Um, But here is their response to salvation. I want to look at the response here. Verse 16, this is the response to their waking up. Verse 16 says, The men feared the Lord, feared Yahweh exceedingly when they're saved. And they they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. To Yahweh they offered the sacrifice. These men have been asleep their whole lives to who God really is, to who he is, the God of heaven, the maker of all things. They've been asleep to this, but now they know him. They know who this is. God has through Jonah's disobedience and Jonah's rejection of him, God has opened their eyes to the reality of his existence And now they can see him clearly, clearer than they could before at least, and they respond in great fear. This is not the terror that they had toward the storm when it was about to rip the the ship into two. This is a kind of holy fear, a recognition of the mercy of God and pulling them out of this fatal storm that they were in. And they worship him. It says they offer a sacrifice and they make vows. That's worship. They are worshiping Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews. (laughs) Jonah's disobedience opened the, the, the opportunity for them to see the one true God. This is an extraordinary scene. But unfortunately, it is in sad contrast to the protagonist, Jonah, if he can be called a protagonist. Jonah's response is in contrast to this. When the captain pleaded for Jonah to wake up and to cry out to his God, the Bible in these few verses show us only silence. They have to cast a lot in order for them to figure out that that he's the one that's responsible for this. So do you see the irony here? Jonah was awakened physically, which shows us his greatest spiritual need. He needs to wake up and return to Yahweh. 
and trust and treasure God and obey him. That's his greatest need. And yet he doesn't do that. It is only after they cast lots that, that they realize that he's the one that he's, that's responsible, that he finally comes clean. And there's no evidence of remorse in his heart. And so for the sailors, though, they didn't bring this storm on themselves at all. For the sailors, God uses this storm as the very means by which he wakes them up to their own spiritual slumber, their own spiritual stupor. They are no longer asleep to the glory of God. They know God. Um, and they can see that their false gods, the gods that they had embraced for, for their whole lives, are actually that, false And they know the one true God, Yahweh, who has saved them from disaster, and they respond in worship. The, two, the, two, the picture that we have here, really, in, in this, these few verses of Jonah, there's, there's two groups of people that are being represented. There's two kinds of people that are in the world. There are only two kinds of people in the world. One kind is asleep. They are asleep to the glory of and worth and beauty of the one true God. They are blind and ignorant to it. They can't see it. And this is due to their hardness of heart, and they are in desperate need of being awakened. The ship is breaking apart around them, and they can't see it. That's one group. The other kind are those who once were asleep but have been awakened. And they know God. They love God. They adore God. They treasure God. They know who he is. Those are the only two human beings that live on this planet. There are no other kinds. There's not a third category. There's just those. And the Apostle Paul, well, really all of the New Testament, shines light onto these two different kinds of people in various ways, but Paul specifically in 1 Thessalonians focuses in on them. And I, wanna, I want us to listen to how he addresses and admonishes Christians to stay awake spiritually by drawing from the same language that we've been using to describe Jonah. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, 5 through 8, you are all children of light. He's talking to the Thessalonian Christians. You're all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. Why is that, Paul? He says, for those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. So Paul's saying here that there are children of the night, children of the darkness who are asleep. According to Ephesians 4 that we saw earlier, they're asleep because they are ignorant to the reality and the beauty and the worth of God. They are asleep due to the hardness of their hearts to God. And in fact, Ephesians 2 would go even deeper than that. It would, they, Ephesians 2 says that they are dead in their trespasses 
and sins. They are dead to the beauty and worth of the living God, and they are following in the the course of this world into destruction as children of wrath. That's what it means to be asleep. You can't even, you don't even know that you're awake. You're, You're sleeping. You're out of it. And yet Paul says in this text that there is another kind of people. There are children of the light, children of the day, people who once were sleeping but have been awakened to the beauty and the glory of God. They are no longer children of darkness. And Paul is is pleading with them. He's telling them here, stay awake. Don't go to sleep. Stay awake. Stay sober. Don't ever run from the glory of God. Don't ever run from his presence because running from him is the difference between salvation and destruction. He is pleading with them to stay awake. And the reason that Paul can do this and do it with great confidence in them actually staying awake is because how these people became children of light and children of the day in the first place. Paul knows the source. He knows the source of the light. He knows it how it is that the Thessalonians, the beginning of the church, came to become children of the day. He knows how it is that that they were awakened and that the sailors, even 750, 800 years earlier, how it was that the sailors were awakened. He knows that. But to understand the connection between the source of the light and his confidence that they will stay awake, we need to see a connection between two different stories. One of them is the one that we just read, the story of Jonah asleep on the boat and being wakened by the captain. And the second one, which we'll read now, is in Mark 4, 35, and it belongs to Jesus. And as we read this, tell me if any of it sounds familiar. On that day when evening had come, Jesus said to them, let us go across to the other side, the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And leaving the crowd, they took with him They took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased. And there was great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And it says that the disciples were filled with great fear and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Now think about this. These disciples were Hebrews. They, they knew the story of Jonah. How did they process this event? How did they, how did they reflect on it? They're in the middle of, of a, a, a sea in a boat 
and all of a sudden this great windstorm collides with their boat. Jesus is sleeping in the middle of a storm, just like Jonah, and they go to him, just like the captain, and, and, and say, don't you care? We're about to die. We're, we're, we're perishing. And it says that Jesus, unlike Jonah, awoke and rebuked the wind and the sea and said, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Try to imagine this in, in your mind. It's hard for us to conceive of this. Massive waves the ship is about to go under. And the man stands up and says, what is it? Three words. And it stops. Glassiest sea that you've ever seen in your life. And if you can conceive of that in your mind, you know why they respond the way they do. But before they can respond, Jesus looks at them and says, why were you so afraid? Why were you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And his point isn't that, hey, listen, you should be afraid of really bad storms. That's not his point. You should be. There's a healthy fear within bad storms, but rather that they do not know who Jesus is. They don't know that. They don't see him for who he is yet. They don't know who they have in their boat with them. And I'll give you a hint. It's not Jonah. They do not have Jonah in the boat with them. Jesus is not Jonah at all. Let me give you an example. Jonah was commanded to go to Nineveh and preach. He turned around and ran in the opposite direction because he knew that God would forgive them. But when Christ was given the command from his father to go and preach to the world, he did not turn and run like Jonah. But he came all the way into our world all the way into our world in order to die for sinners. And in his dying, he purchases the very forgiveness, the very forgiveness that all of us need, that Nineveh needs, that the sailors need, that Jonah needs, the very forgiveness that our life depends on, Christ would purchase with his own life. Jesus didn't flee from the presence of Yahweh. Think about this for a second. He brought the presence of Yahweh to earth and tabernacled with them, John 1 says. Because Jesus is Yahweh. He is Yahweh in the flesh. He is very God of very God. And that's why he was asking his disciples, why were you so afraid? Why were you so afraid? Don't you know who I am? Don't you know who I am? I made the wind. I made the sea and everything. I am Yahweh. And so without even saying those words specifically, the disciples get the picture. That's why they respond with great fear at the end. They're fearful because they realize this isn't who we thought he was. Who is this that can command the wind and the sea and they obey him? God stopped the storm in the book of Jonah, and God stops the storm in the book of Mark through the person of Jesus Christ. Think about this. When the disciples are looking at Jesus, imagine what they might be going through in their minds. The sea is calm. It wasn't like that 30 seconds ago. And they are looking at Jesus' face, and they are looking at the face of God. They are looking at the one who made 
the wind and made the seas and the dry land and all of that. And they belong to him and they obey him, stopping on a dime. And in doing this, just as we saw in the book of Jonah, God creates worshipers. He creates worshipers. He wakes people up from their sleep. That's what this part in Jonah is showing us. When Jonah runs from God, he is asleep in the most perilous of ways. There is not a a worse way to be asleep than Jonah in this book. He needs desperately to be awakened to the glory of God. Jonah needs to, he needs to, he needs the kind of awakening that we see from the sailors when they respond with worship and with making vows. That's the kind of awaking, awakening that Jonah needs. He needs to transfer his affection to whatever it is he's holding on to here back to the living God. And this scene in Mark 4 shows us the connection between Christ and Jonah. There's a lot of connections, but the connection we should focus on here isn't the fact that they're both sleeping. It isn't the boat. It isn't the storm. The connection here is that the only one that can stop the storm is the only one that can wake us up. They're one in the same person. He is the only one who can bring us out of the deadliness of our slumber and back to life. Ephesians 2 and Colossians 2 both tell us that even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with who? Christ. With Christ Jesus. It's because of Jesus that we are awakened. This is the whole purpose of the New Testament. The New Testament exists to wake people up. To raise people from a spiritual deadness to God and his glory. And the clearest statement we have in the New Testament of this is one simple line from Ephesians 5. I want you to listen to the words that Paul uses to to wake up people in Ephesus or to remind them of what it was like for them to be awakened. Ephesians 5.14 says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. He's drawing from an Old Testament passage, actually several passages in the book of Isaiah, uh, where God through the prophet is reminding the people of Israel to wake up to his glory, to his beauty, to his worth, so that the light of Christ can shine on them and so that they can be a beacon of light to the world. But this also, this line, awake, O sleeper, sounds an awful lot like the line from the captain to Jonah. Wake up. Up, you sleeper. See, the Ephesians knew that at one time they had been asleep to the glory of God, just like Jonah, just like the sailors. They were dead to the beauty, the worth, the glory of who God is. But Christ himself, who is, according to Hebrews 1.3, the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature, had broken them out of their slumber and filled them with the same glory that he possesses so that they would be children of light, children of the day. And this is true of everyone who's put their faith in Christ Jesus. The reason we believe isn't because, and you need to hear me on this one, the reason we believe in this room isn't because we're more clever or wise or discerning than anyone else on this planet. 
The reason we believe is because Jesus has woken us up. He has shined the light of his glory into our lives, and he did that through the sacrifice on the cross. Jesus purchased and secured our wakefulness by his own blood. So that you and I are awake in this room, that we're worshiping God, we need to, we, is, is, is due to the fact that we at some level recognize that God is real and that he's worthy to be loved and treasured because at some point in our past, Jesus woke us up to that. And that happened through the cross. And so in a few moments, we're gonna be worshiping in communion, the Lord's Supper. And if your faith is in Christ and you've been awakened to his glory, then I would ask that you receive the elements, the, the, the bread and the cup. And as you do, consider something that we read earlier. I mentioned this earlier. I want, I, I want our hearts to, to fixate on this as we, as we embrace the elements here. After Jonah had fled the presence of God, after he had disabused himself of the glory and worth of God, and God's purpose and mercy towards Nineveh. There are three words at the beginning of Jonah 1.4 that we need to see. We need to know these words. These words are precious words. They are, but the Lord. Jonah had rebelled against God. He is running in the opposite direction. He has not shown any inclination that he wants to come back at all. He is asleep at the bottom of a boat that's about to be destroyed. He is running as far and as fast as he can go. Yet it says in verse 4, but the Lord. Those are beautiful words. They are beautiful words. And I, I want you to see how I'm desperate for you to see how beautiful these are. God didn't need to come after Jonah. He didn't need to. There was nothing constraining him to do that. And there was nothing constraining him to come after each one of us. But he did. He did. God came after you individually. I want you just to think about your own life, your own your own soul, your own trajectory away from God. The reason you're a child of light right now is that those three words, but the Lord, belong to you at some point in your life. They belong to you. God looked down on us, running from him in idolatry, in sin, and rather than let us plunge headlong into an eternity of a wrathful storm, those three words happened to us, but the Lord stepped in and stopped us and plucked us from the storm. And so for some of you who may feel like you are far from God right now, and I don't know where everyone is in this room or even listening, but for those who feel like they're far from God, whether it's because of sin in your own life, whether it's because of a, a real rebellion that you're actually doing, or whether it's just because you're in a season where it feels dry, 
I haven't talked to him. I don't want to talk to him. I'm done. You need to know, you need to know that you are never too far from God for those three words to happen to you. You're not. You're not. You're never too, too asleep. You're never too dead. There is no one who is too dead for God not to be able to raise him from the death that he's in. If you belong to God, you cannot outrun his love. And Jonah's story shows us that here. God is pursuing him in the middle of the Mediterranean. He'll find you. He'll find you and he'll wake you up. And when he does, he'll say these words to you. Awake, O sleeper. Arise from the dead. And Christ will shine on you. Let's pray. Father, these, these are words on a page in a book. They are words on a page in a book. And yet somehow you have created them to penetrate the deepest parts of our hearts and our souls and bring about your purposes and your plans even when we are kicking and screaming against them. And so my prayer for me personally and for my friends here today is that you would shine the light of Christ's glory on every part of our being, every part of our soul, every part of our existence, Father God, the, the areas that we don't let other people in, Father, shine that light there. We want to see you. We want to see you and to adore you the way we ought to. And so whatever the delta is, Father God, in each heart that's in this room, Father, I pray that you would close it and that those words, but the Lord would become so real, so beautiful to us, whether we're reflecting on what you've done in the past or whether we're in the middle of you coming back to get us. Help us know those words. Help us to see those words. Help us to embrace those words, Father God. And for that praise, that worship that we saw from the sailors to rise up in our hearts and for us to glorify and exalt your name by being children of light, children of day in a world filled with darkness. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.